Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Uh, hello, hello. Wow, tentative. We'll see what that's all about. And Alex Lawson. <laughs> Hi, guys. How you doing? Bill, are you just not knowing how to say hello, hello, because you're too distracted by wanting to talk about our movie club that we've started? Yeah, I think we're just going to... I think this episode will just be another episode of the movie club. I think that's just going to sort of metastasize and take over the whole the whole program. <laughs> that's that's what our bosses at Law 360 want to hear that it's all becoming movies now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but in case some of our listeners haven't heard this yet or haven't seen it in their feed, we did release the first episode of our movie club, which is where we're taking a look at legal movies, breaking them down over the summer. It's some bonus content for our pro se listeners. Um, the first episode is Legally Blonde. But we have another one coming up on Tuesday, and that's going to be a fun one as well. Yeah, we're talking uh, A Few Good Men, the Rob Reiner uh, naval legal drama. Very excited about that. It's a fine movie. It was fun to talk about it with you guys. Uh, and I'm, uh, uh, I'm really happy with the project. I've gotten some good feedback so far. The people are liking it, and uh, uh, I hope that continues to be the case. I don't know, though, if I can handle the truth. I still, to this day, don't know. Well, I mean, you should really nail that down, especially since you're like a journalist and all that stuff. So uh, it's, it's just it's just something to it's just something to Great grapple point. with. You know? <laughs> point. Yeah. So as much as I just want to talk about movies with you guys right. now that we're in that zone, um, we do have a show of some hard hitting news today. One of the things we're going to talk about is the issue of guardianship. Yeah, obviously that is a topic that has been at the top, at the top of mind for um, uh, everyone in the country as we follow the sort of uh, the Britney Spears legal saga over her conservatorship. Just yesterday, there was a development in that case. She got to um, appoint her own counsel and sort of get out from under the uh, conservator-appointed counsel. That's going to keep going. Um, this week, we're not quite talking about the Britney case. Certainly, there's been extensive writing about that uh, everywhere you look. But Amber and I had an interesting talk with Kara Bayless about um, uh, legal guardianship and some of the sort of more unsavory legal stuff that can flow from that um, in some lower profile cases um, that the Britney Spears case has kind of shined a light on the issue. It was good chat. Yeah, definitely Britney is why I was interested at all in guardianship and like yeah. learning more about it. But um once you scratch the surface of that, it's really a very messy part of the law. So it was great to have Kara explain it to us. I and I, I think uh, we're gonna maybe have some news in the Britney uh, case in the next couple of weeks. I know the the uh, Greenberg Traurig uh, yes. attorney was appointed as her attorney this week, so um, uh, we will obviously be keeping a close eye on that, and we'll do um, you know give it the pro se treatment in uh, in due course. Um, but uh, but before we get to talking uh, talking to Kara, we have some news to talk about. First up, um, we're going to talk about Tiger King. Do you guys oh, remember? It, it seems like another lifetime ago. But. <laughs> it really does. I was thinking about this before the show. You know, of course, like everybody in the nation, you know, when we went in lockdown, we all watched Tiger King together. I feel like it was the national pastime. But I had really blocked that out. It does feel like that was many moons ago. It was. Uh, it was a nice thing to have yeah. at that moment, and it does feel compartmentalized as part of that moment. I feel like I can like feel quarantine when I think about. Yeah, it. I yeah. know it's that it's that early pandemic Tiger King stuff. But yeah. um, but we're talking about it this week because uh, uh, Joe Exotic, who is the protagonist, if you want to antagonist, I don't yeah, know. Sure, of, yeah, sure. Of the story, <laughs> depends on your perspective. Yeah, uh, the the eccentric zookeeper at the center of the story. <laughs> 
he is in prison for attempting to have the other main character in the show assassinated. Uh, uh, we are talking about him because he won an appellate court ruling this week, uh, but it's not exactly a not exactly a huge victory. So it's interesting to talk about. I just want to say, uh, I think I think the eccentric zookeepers opened for Nirvana in the nineties. Um, <laughs> big 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 fan of their work. Um, but seriously, uh, I know that the the whole sort of saga that was laid out in the dock had a lot of legal underpinnings there was like you know a so- there was a soft ip dispute that kind of led to some other stuff to some more obviously serious charges we're talking about here um wind us back uh, let's let, let's let's recap a little bit the uh, legal misadventures here i'm so glad you mentioned that alex because it really is ultimately a story of copyright law yeah uh, i know <laughs> that I, is... I, I, that's why this was so this was so big for you it was a big moment for me <laughs> and my people uh <laughs> If you want to go back and listen to all that, there was a lot to talk about. There was a bankruptcy in there. There were there were like right. twenty different lawsuits uh, that took place in Tiger King. We talked about that in episode one forty four. If you want to go back and listen, but uh, obviously the most serious lawsuit legal battle in the in the the documentary was the one that capped off the show, which was a criminal trial after Joe Exotic. Uh, paid two men to kill animal rights activist Carol Baskin um, <laughs> after their years of feuding, which is sort of the basic narrative of the show. Spoiler alert if anyone hasn't seen Tiger King. I mean, you missed your window. But yeah. uh, uh, So one of the people that he paid was an undercover FBI agent. He was quickly arrested, put on trial. Um, in April 2019, jurors returned guilty verdicts on both murder for hire counts against exotic as well as 17 different uh wildlife charges because obviously he owned <laughs> that was a lot important of too <laughs> wild animals on his yeah. farm as a tiger king yes uh in in january 2020 joe exotic was sentenced to 22 years in prison so that's sort of gets us up to the present day so me and, uh, like I said, all of America watched the show, but so did all my friends. So yesterday when the the appeal news broke, um, I had more than one person reach out to me and say like, oh, is Joe Exotic going to walk free? <laughs> That's not exactly what happened, right? This reminds me of the scene in, in, in Die Hard 2 when there's a... <laughs> There's a dictator, and, and he, he, he pops out of a plane thinking he's escaped, and he says, freedom. And then, of course, John McClane punches him in the face and says, not yet. Uh, <laughs> the clutch reference from you. I'm, I'm so proud you. of you. This is, this is amazing. Go ahead. Look, I mean, Die Hard 2 informs much of my worldview. Um, yeah. The answer is no, he's not free. Uh, on Wednesday, the, a, a federal appeals court vacated his sentence but that does not mean um that he is exonerated it it, the the court said that there had been a procedural error by a lower court judge by the trial judge that had potentially increased the sentence a, a little bit um to sort of boil it down to its simplest terms the appeals court said that the trial judge had failed to properly quote group um, these two separate murder for hire charges against exotic mm. when considering how to sentence him. So um, uh, the the court, the lower court treated them as two uh, separate different crimes um, when the appeals court said they should have been combined uh, to a certain extent. So as a result of this, the sentencing guidelines skewed upwards by about five years Um uh, of course, sentencing is is you know is within the discretion of the judge. So this is all sort of right. 
Um, but so at, at the trial, the judge had had reasoned that Exotic had devised, quote, two separate plots for murder by paying these two men to separately, you know, commit this murder. Um, the 10th tenth, the Circuit said that that was not the correct way to analyze the situation. The quote, Baskin was neither murdered multiple times nor assaulted multiple times during attempted murders. Her harm was one sustained ongoing harm. The judge later added, the district court erred in finding that Baskin had suffered individual harms, not a composite harm from the two murder plots. So it's sort of in the weeds here uh, about what's happening. And it still, um, you know, it still leaves a lot of discretion for this judge. Um, The court did, I should say, uh, they rejected a more sweeping appeal from exotic that would have overturned the actual conviction that had to do with whether or not Carol Baskin, who was herself a witness in the case, should have been in attendance during the trial. Um, you get into some, uh, th- there's a statute that protects the rights of criminal victims that came into play there. Anyway, the court rejected that. So this was really just dealing with the sentencing, not the actual conviction. I'm just glad we have some guidance from the 10th Circuit on the important point that uh, a person was not murdered multiple times. That really stuck out to me in the analysis. <laughs> the quote um, the quote jumps off the page. <laughs> it sure does. Uh, so, okay, so they, they, they find this sort of technical error in the way they, they group the charges. Do we think that mean, that is going to lead to a lighter sentence or it's just a formality or what, what's the forecast there? Well, as I hinted at earlier, this is dealing with guidelines, which are then applied by the same judge that made this grouping decision. So um, the answer is no, that it's not going to reduce the sentence too much, because um, the appeals court said in this ruling yesterday that uh, even if the the, these two crimes had been properly, uh, you know, grouped, as they said, uh, the sentencing guidelines still would have been between 17 and a half years and about 22 years. So the 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 rough you know ballpark of this sentence is still the same. I mean, if you are in federal prison, I'm sure that five years is is nothing to sneeze sure, at. So I don't yeah. mean to make light of it, but um, you know, it's still a, a lengthy sentence ahead um, for Joe Exotic, no matter what. I mean, there may be other uh, ways that he's going to challenge his conviction in the future. These criminal cases have a way of, you know, continuing to have appeals over the years. But um, in terms of this ruling, it it was a win, but a slight win for Joe Exotic. We'll stay in the show business realm here somewhat. Uh, And as as I've always said, you know, celebrities are just like us. They get up, they go to work, they spend time with their loved ones. That's true. You have always said that. I do. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, sometimes... They get into extremely protracted uh, property disputes with their attorney neighbors that produce years worth of extremely tedious litigation uh, with uh, miles and miles worth of discovery and uh, no end in sight. Uh, And that's what's going on right now with um, actor Justin Theroux. And uh, who was in uh, The Leftovers and uh, used to be married to Jennifer Aniston and uh, a number of other things. Uh, He is in a fight right now with uh, his neighbor, who is a man named Norman Resnickow. And Norman Resnickow is an attorney with uh, a firm called Fox, Horan, and Camerini here in New York City. Uh, Thoreau claims that Resnickow has effectively, like, weaponized his legal training as, like, an intimidation tool in this property dispute that has spanned for several years at the Greenwich Village co-op where they both live. Mm -hmm. Um, The case, uh, we're four years into this case, and it's still in discovery, and we got a pretty uh, uh, intriguing ruling um, last week as the judge basically blocked Resnickow's attempts to shield 
uh, emails that he had sent to his colleagues at his firm about this dispute. Um, so there's there's lots of strands to this one, and I think we should uh, we should we should get into this it. This is like a Mad Libs. Of, yeah, it, it <laughs> we got really some very is. interesting privilege uh, precedent. I know involving I know. Justin Thoreau. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, let's get into the particulars here because it does seem like the kind of New York property squabble between neighbors that you know, happens a lot, but because it's a high-powered attorney and a high-powered actor, it gets way more interesting. Yeah, I mean, the simpletons like us, I mean, I just go upstairs and ask my neighbor, hey, can you keep it down? I'm, I'm like trying to do some stuff. And usually that, usually that'll do it. This is a lot more complicated. Um, this all began as uh, this neighborly spat um, about renovations that Thoreau began to make uh, at his apartment in this Greenwich Village co-op. Uh, and on the roof deck uh, in 2015. Um, the according to the suit that was filed two years later in 2017, as Thoreau was under was uh, doing these renovations, Reznikow um, basically became belligerent um, through the entire process. And again, since we're still in discovery, we are relying, as far as the facts go, we're relying mostly on the complaint. We're trying to sort of get to the truth of the facts through discovery. Um, but uh, Reznikow had basically said that the project was disruptive and he t- and he took several retaliatory steps that prompted this suit from Thoreau. Um, among those steps uh, included uh, uh, destroying the ivy hedge that Thoreau had put up between their two plots on the building's roof deck. Uh, he at one point allegedly cut off uh, water and electric service to Thoreau's part of the deck. And he also demanded that the actor install about $30,000 worth of soundproofing in his floor uh, to keep the noise down. Reznikow was the downstairs neighbor here. Um, for his part, uh, Reznikow told the New York Post in 2017, I have acted for one purpose only, which remains to assure my and my wife's health and safety. As for the terrace boundary matter, smart people can work that out, and both my wife and I and Justin are represented by smart people. Um, the dispute has turned a bit uglier uh, in the intervening years since the case was filed. Thoreau has... Um, accused Reznikow of verbally abusing his wife um, and asked for a restraining order since she's technically a witness in the case and he views that as witness intimidation. That's that's bubbled up a couple times. Uh, anyway, that's a short version. Uh, it's a huge mess that the state court is uh, trying to sort out uh, here in New York. But, okay, so get us up to speed on what happened this week because, you know, it's a, it's a lot of... Uh, it's a terrific story, but what what happened this week that that sort of is is what we're talking about? Yeah, so like I say, they're 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 weeding their way through discovery, and one thing that colors a lot of Thoreau's complaint is that before before they took this to the court, Reznikow was basically kind of using his status as an attorney to kind of trump up some of his some of these claims he was making about the problems he was having with the renovations. Like you, you hear about this sometimes. It was like lawyers will say, like, listen, I'm a lawyer. I know about this stuff, and you are way in the wrong here. He's suggesting that he's got the legal high ground and all of that. I will say I find that very funny because often <laughs> in like just, you know, regular news, you hear of some uh, you know, celebrity that's been pulled over by a cop and they're like, Don't you know who I am? And yeah. this is the legal version of that. A little bit, right? It's the lawyer that's like, Don't you know that I'm a lawyer and I know this? Yeah. Against <laughs> against the celebrity. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's a, the shoe's on the other foot there. Um, so the important thing to know for, for what happened with the reason we're talking about it this week is that at some point in the dispute, Reznikow went so far as to contact two of his colleagues at his firm. Uh, those, those men's names are Eric Fidel and William Brodsky. 
for basically their uh, assistance or their insight as to this property dispute he was having with Thoreau. Now, as Discovery has played out, he had tried to shield those emails he sent to his colleagues from the record he had cited. Listen, I'm involved in this dispute, and these are my attorneys. This is attorney-client privilege. You can't look at this stuff. But the judge said um, that just because they are attorneys uh, doesn't mean they are his attorneys. <laughs> they are that, they are a attorney. <laughs> they but are not some attorney. The attorney. <laughs> yes, correct. Um, and that's you know the court has it has a, um, a a multi pronged analysis when it tries to establish whether a relationship exists. It's not only about whether there's a specific legal agreement. There are many factors that go into it. But the judge said that Resnikow basically hadn't done anything to show that connection. There had been, um, you know, he had, he, he had, he was, that to show that he was doing anything beyond asking his friends at the firm about uh, some property law and real estate uh, legal matters. He said, you know, there, there's no, there's been no payment of fees. There's no agreement. The attorneys never appeared on his behalf in court. Uh, and he just didn't, didn't really think that they, that those um, communications should be privileged. Uh, here was a quote from the opinion. In short, defendants have not offered any independent fact beyond Norman Resnikow's own conclusory statements to demonstrate that an attorney-client relationship did exist between Resnikow and Fidel or Resnikow and Brodsky. So um, that basically does away with that, um, and uh, they will continue to slug it out in court. That's pretty interesting as a takeaway, though, because, you know, lawyers do ask each other questions all the time and it just doesn't come up a lot that then you're trying to shield those conversations and discovery. Is that kind of our biggest takeaway at this point? Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, we, I like to sort of, you know, if, if there's like a teachable moment for the bar or like something, some like issue to watch in the legal community, you know, I don't know. Um, there's uh, been a lot of tussling uh, over privilege uh, documents in this case. They've exchanged sort of motions on that. Um, but I guess uh, it, this is a salient example for all for any lawyers out there who might be listening, who might be considering getting into a property dispute with a famous actor who lives next to them. Uh, or vice versa, if you're a famous actor uh, listening sure. to us, I don't know how likely that is. Sure, um, much of our—I yeah. would say much of our listenership, <laughs> famous actors, probably uh, a fifty-fifty sure. split between actors and lawyers. If we're being it's honest, it's really—it's really gone up since Movie Club. Well, I think I they're all say, tuning especially in now. now. Yeah, we're getting getting a lot of getting a lot of ears on this one. Britney Spears recently spoke out to a judge about the guardianship that she says is unwarranted and abusive. And while her case may be the most high profile, it's far from the only one questioning a legal mechanism that can strip people of their rights to basic self-determination. Today, we're joined by Law360 feature reporter Kara Bayless to talk about just what's going on with the guardianship system. Welcome back to the show, Kara. Thanks for having me. So... It's been a few years since I took trust in estates in law school, and that's the last time I really thought about guardianships until all the news sprung up about Britney Spears. And while we're not going to really focus on her case, we're going to talk big picture about what the system really is and how it works. Can you give us kind of the overview of what we need to know about guardianship? Sure. So uh, guardianship is really meant for people who are unable to take care of themselves. Uh, It can really limit a person's right to self-determination. People under guardianship often can't make their own financial or health care decisions. They can't vote. They can't 
uh, marry who they want. They can't drive. They can't pursue their interests in court. Um, so basically what happens is a probate court appoints a person, and sometimes it's a family member, and sometimes it's uh, a professional guardian, uh, to make those decisions for a person. Uh now, guardianship is often triggered by a finding of incapacity, which is a sort of squishy term. The more that you look at it, it's considered a medical finding, but it's also a court finding. Uh, there's no real medical definition for incapacity. And if you read the statute in Florida carefully, you'll see that it's determined by a majority of a three-person panel, and only one of those people is required to be an MD. So, uh, you know, one attorney told me that a finding of incapacity is more art than science, which, you know, I mean, it can really strip a person of their rights to self-determination. Yeah, considering what's at stake um, when incapacity is triggered or, or what incapacity triggers, that's um, quite a jarring statement to hear someone to make. Um, you know, there have been a lot of eyeballs on this issue, whether, you know, you call it conservatorship or guardianship or whatever it is because of the Britney Spears case, but your story did a great job of kind of looking under the hood here. This is something that for various reasons, you know, whether it's the amount of money at stake or just, you know, it, 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 it doesn't get a lot of eyeballs. It sort of happens in probate court, which not a lot of people pay attention to. And you really kind of uh, wonderfully dug into all of the, the data on this. Um, what 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 kind of scope are we looking at here in terms of are, are a lot of people facing this? What are we looking at? I mean, one of the many problems with the guardianship system is that we do a terrible job of tracking it. So any yeah. statistic I can offer you is kind of conjecture, but it's okay. estimated that uh, 1.3 million adults um, and about $50 billion in assets are under the control of guardians. Um, and, you know, that that number could really grow as the baby boomer generation ages into elderly status. Uh mm. The number of adults older than 85 is estimated to more than double between 2018 uh, and 2040, uh, and that population will grow from 6.5 million to 14.4 million people. Uh, so that means that this problem could only grow more widespread. Yeah, that is a lot of people to consider here. And we've talked about sort of a few different um, sort of buckets of people that might fall into some kind of guardianship arrangement. The Britney Spears type where um, there's been some mental health allegations that's triggered hers versus um, people that are just aging and have issues related to you yeah. know that natural progression. So I know you talk to people involved in cases at a, at a few different points like that. What were some of the things they told you about their stories and about how they were deemed incapacitated? Yeah, well, one person I talked to, his name is Doug Keegan. Uh, he was placed under guardianship in 2014 uh, when it's kind of an unusual circumstance. His family raised concerns about his alcoholism. Um, they said that he had basically drunk himself to the point that uh, he had frontal lobe damage uh, in his brain. Um, but he'd struggled with alcoholism for decades. Uh, they also had concerns about him marrying a woman who they thought was after his money. So he was placed under guardianship. Uh, he was forced to move into an assisted living facility. He had owned his own home. Uh, and he fought that uh, determination of incapacity for seven years. Um, and he kept getting reevaluated. And just to show you how murky incapacity can be, he was evaluated by, by my count at least eight different medical professionals over the course of seven years. Uh, one said he was psychotic and delusional. One said he was, uh, uh, he performed above normal on co cognitive tests. 
uh, three recommended no guardianship at all, two recommended limited guardianship, and two recommended complete and total guardianship. So mm-hmm. I can't imagine a more even spread. Yeah, um, the real roll of the dice there. Right. Uh, and so he was a, eventually he was deemed capacitated again in court um, and released from his guardianship. But the whole saga, you know, when it started, he had a three-bedroom home that he owned. He was retired. He had a healthy savings. Now his home and his car have been sold during his guardianship. He lives in a furnished studio uh, in a long-term stay motel, um, and hundreds of thousands of dollars of his savings have been spent on attorney's fees and guardianship fees. It's uh, That's just one of the very colorful stories he laid out. I would, I would uh, encourage everybody to go read um, Kara's piece if you get a chance. Um, I'm interested in, in sort of diagnosing how these problems arise, because I don't mean to and I know you didn't say this, but I don't mean to presume that like the entire system of guardianship is bad, as we've said right. a couple of times here. It, of course, is, serves a purpose within the legal system for people who legitimately cannot take care of themselves. But were, were, were you able to pin down exactly how problems relating to abuse of this system can crop up? Is it to do with like if you just don't have a strong financial plan in place for your later years? Is it easy to take advantage that way? Um, what are what are some of the, the 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 sort of causes of these of these issues? Yeah, I'm interested to hear what you say about this, Kara, because I always like to think like you can plan your way around, you know, potential problems. Right, yeah. And I don't know that it's that simple here. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it is. I mean, uh, it's always better to be pre- to be prepared and have uh, sort of plans in place. One of the the documents that a lot of uh, legal experts recommend is a power of attorney, which um, you know uh, is a document that can you can basically sort of set out how you want things to go when you at the point where you no longer can make these decisions for yourself. Um, but, uh, I mean, again, that that, that, be- that that still leaves us with this threshold issue of who decides when you can't make your own decisions anymore, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one problem is that a lot of people will uh, designate a family member who maybe uh, they love very dearly, but is not the best person to make these decisions on their behalf. Um, but, I mean, another, it can also go to this question of incapacity again, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, there was this case of uh, Gerald Halpin, who's actually kind of a famous real estate magnate uh, in the D.C. area. Uh, he was extremely successful and he did everything right. He signed a springing durable power of attorney, which basically is a document that says, um, here's how you how here's how you know that I can no longer make decisions. Yeah. You right? lay out criteria or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and here's who I want to make these decisions once I no longer can. Um, and he, his family saga is very complex. It's like a season of the HBO show succession. He was wealthy, he had a double life with a second family. A oh lot boy. of his kids were fighting over his holdings while he was still alive. But at one point, some of the people in his orbit said he was incompetent due to dementia. Um, and they had two doctors check him out, and that triggered his power of attorney. Uh, and then a year later, allegedly because it benefited them in litigation, some of the same people took him to a new set of doctors who said, oh, no, he's competent after all, or he's capacitated. Yeah, right, uh, right. So, so I mean, that kind of goes to show you, I mean, even you can plan everything out and still sort of be a pawn in, in these kinds of games. So it sounds like the real problem here is that mo money, mo problems. I mean, it's just like any time <laughs> that like a family member can be involved and maybe get a little greedy about something or not 
have those best interests at heart because of the temptation of all the money we're talking about. Definitely. I mean, it's not limited to the ultra wealthy. This can happen to anyone, right? Uh, I mean, there's always a social security check at the very least. But yeah, it does seem the to... The notorious B.I.G. tried to warn us, but yes, it, 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 it can apply. Yes. Sorry, go ahead. Well, we've laid out a really tricky system here then where there is a meaningful reason that guardianship and uh, as, a, as a concept exists, but there's a myriad of ways that it can be abused and misused. So what are we to do? I mean, I I would imagine there's a lot of suggestions out there for how to make the system better. Yeah, I mean, it depends on who you ask, right? There are a lot of advocates who say the whole system is just too corrupt because there's Mm -hmm. so much money involved uh, that it's beyond reform, especially because uh, in the guardianship system, it's become this sort of professional uh, system uh, where people are professional guardians. Um, Yeah. There are some legislative efforts to improve the probate system. Uh, the Uniform Law Center has come up with some uh, laws that they're or legislation that they're trying to get passed, uh, but it's a state by state thing. Um, there are two la- laws that they're touting that would uh, really tailor. Uh, the guardianship to the individual um, and give that individual as much power as possible with a sort of assisted decision-making model that at least gives them a seat at the table uh, Mm -hmm. with their decisions so it's less paternalistic. Um, But then who monitors that? I mean, that that in and of itself has what seems like it would be a whole nother set of potential problems. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the biggest problem with the guardianship system is the lack of oversight. Um, and it's a state court issue, uh, so it can vary a lot depending on yep. where you are. But yeah, across, across the board, the probate court system is the least... Uh, well-funded. It's the most underfunded system. Uh, So oversight is a huge problem because oversight costs money. Uh, There are some low or no-cost ways to increase oversight by sort of uh, having family or or, uh, close friends sort of um, uh, notified anytime there's some kind of change in status or some kind of big uh, decision to be made. Um, But because the resources just aren't there, a lot of states are reluctant to pass reforms. Um, at a very basic level, just, you know, kind of how we started out, just being able to have the data at our fingertips is so important. Yeah. I talked to one court investigator. He was looking into the case of Rebecca Furley, who's uh, this Orlando-based uh, guardian who's going to go to trial soon for uh, placing do not resuscitate orders on her clients against their wishes. Jeez. Uh, really dark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, he said it took him, this investigator, it took him four full days just to figure out that she was the guardian to 208 people across oh, 18 wow. counties. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, that's a lot of people for one person to be a guardian for. Uh, but four days is a lot of time for an investigator to sink into what should be accessible with the click of a button. Um, so that's a problem that's kind of been recognized across the board by federal legislators and uh, local reform advocates and guardianship supporters and retractors is how do you suss out abuse within a system with no oversight? I think that if nothing else, then all of Britney Spears' troubles have really shed a light here and really appreciate your reporting on this and diving deep so that we can get a little more understanding as well. Thanks for bringing it to us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I know you have a bit of a wild one to break down for us today. Well, it's time once again for one of our favorite segments, uh, Judges Behaving Badly. Hey! Judges Behaving Badly. How are we feeling, folks? (laughs) This is great. Uh, This week... We uh, haven't had one of these in a while. Can't I wait know. to hear what they did. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to I want to thank I want to give a shout out to uh, a listener, uh, a man named John Hare, who actually flagged this to me uh, yesterday. Thought it would be good for the show, and he is correct because uh, this is an insane story. Um, we turn our attention this week to uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, a place I've been to many times on several vacations uh, as a. Uh, uh, suburban Chicagoite, uh, where Winnebago County uh, Judge <laughs> Scott Wolt has been uh, suspended by the state Supreme Court for numerous instances of misconduct. Uh, some of which they they range from just sort of I don't know discourteous uh, you know uh, uh, addressing of litigants, but more importantly. Uh, brandishing a gun in the courthouse on multiple <laughs> occasions, including once during a session of open court. Um, Excuse wild. me. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have. I. I tried before the show to figure out if the guy was actually a time traveler and he was a judge in the old west. Perhaps that was the. Sure. I couldn't. I couldn't confirm it before. I couldn't confirm it or deny it uh, before. Um, sure. Before we recorded, we'll but, call him the alleged time traveler throughout. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, the The details here are as insane as you might think. Um, uh, this all comes from uh, courtesy of the newspaper, the the Appleton Post Crescent, uh, who uh, reported this story uh, in in great detail. So thanks thanks to them for that. The most egregious thing here took place when uh, during a sentencing uh, during the sentencing of a defendant who was convicted on a stalking charge. The judge, Judge Woltz, withdrew a handgun from his robe in court. He took out the clip and he did the old, uh, you know, pull back the slide and eject the round from the chamber. Sure. Told the defendant, you're lucky you're not dead because if you would have come into my house, I keep my gun with me and you'd be dead. Plain and simple. End quote. Ah, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. uh this is scary stuff. I mean, that's also, um, well, it's just, it's so outrageous that you would flag it in like a TV show as like unbelievable <laughs> stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And and it also just seems really gratuitous. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, I almost, you know, we, we, we come to the offbeat section. I try and have some, some, some jokes, a few bits. I mean, this really speaks for itself. I don't know the sheer absurdity of it all. Right. We wouldn't want to gild the lily here. I mean, no. this is just a, a judge pulling out a handgun and telling one of the litigants that they would be dead. I mean, yeah. And not just pulling it out, pulling it out and basically like waving it around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... You know, uh, there are a couple other things here. Uh, this is not the only gun incident. Uh, the one, one of the other incidents that's that's uh, in question here is uh, the judge. There were a group of high school students that had visited the courthouse, um, and I'm so were asking, I'm so worried where this is going. I, they, they they were asking the judge some questions, um, and uh, he basically showed his gun to them <laughs> after they had asked him about courtroom security. Uh, this is this is from the opinion, which I think is like this isn't written to be funny, but this is actually some amazingly dry comedy writing from the Supreme Court. Quote, 
Judge Wolk displayed the gun as a prop when responding to a student question about courthouse security generally. The question did not ask him whether he carried a firearm, and no one asked him to display a gun. So, sir, sir, this is an Arby's. I, I, I want to, yeah, right. <laughs> sir, this is a county courthouse, okay? Uh, the I, only people who have guns here are, are the bailiffs, usually. Yeah. Can you imagine a high school student that was like, do you have a gun? And if so, can you show it to me now? Like, well, of no one asked him for that. Well, it's important for the court to clear that question up, I think. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, there was some other, there was some other stuff that falls kind of in the in the bucket of things we've seen where judges are kind of overly dismissive or you know or like derogatory toward parties who are arguing before them. Probably the worst of those. Um, Walt called a um, 13-year-old victim of sexual assault a so-called victim at one point. Uh, Fairly unsavory on that point. Um, So he was disciplined uh, this week, and for all of this, he's going to be suspended for seven days, which the court said was necessary to, quote, assure members of the public that judges will treat them with dignity, fairness, and respect when they enter the courtrooms of this state. I mean, I, I will say I have been assured of that. From this, I mean, se- <laughs> seven days. I, count me assured. Yeah, there was there was some interesting calculus going on with why they did that. They pointed out um, uh, th- that there were no prior uh, sort of allegations of misconduct before this, which to me kind of stuck out because this is at least seven different allegations of misconduct. But that's not for me to say. I am not a justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, for his part, uh, Walt, during the process, um, didn't deny any of the factual allegations against him. He did say that they were being, like, mischaracterized. He also questioned why this was all being raised years after the fact. This, um, all the stuff that happened in this case happened uh, between 2009 and 2016, um, and the, the, it sort of worked its way through the judicial um, disciplinary ranks in Wisconsin. We should we should do a whole show on the statute of limitations for uh, brandishing a firearm in open court. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to look into that. That sounds good. Um, one thing with the, the, the other thing um, that stuck out to me, and then we can get out of here on this, um, there was a partial dissent in the case, two justices, uh, Rebecca Bradley, and I I don't mean to, this is the person's name, uh, Justice Patience Roggensack thought that the majority was being uh, a little too sensitive about the gun issue. This is a quote from the dissent. I dissent from the majority insofar as it disciplines Walt for his displays of a firearm and innocuous statements, which may have offended the sensibilities of the three justices, but undoubtedly did not violate the Wisconsin Judicial Code conduct. So, at least two judges think that uh, uh, taking out the gun in open court not such a big deal to them. But uh, anyway, the judge is uh, suspended for seven days, and uh, this story uh, uh, cooked my brain up on a frying pan. So I'm going to need go. to <laughs> suspend the Pro Se podcast from recording for the next seven days while I think about how strange this one was. <laughs> this, is, this is one of many reasons not to get into a legal entanglement. It's obviously bad to get arrested. It's bad to be in court. But, you know, you also might get a gun pointed at you by, uh, by a judge, <laughs> which you also don't want. Wow, what a way to end the show. Thanks for bringing that one, Alex. It was a wild ride. Thank you. And thanks for being with me today, Bill. I will see you guys again next week. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Kara Bayless, and contributing reporter, Max Yeager. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast now. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read about anything we've talked about, 
go on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.